Welcome to the Hutchmoot Podcast, brought to you by the Rabbit Room Podcast Network. If you're wondering what in the world a Hutchmoot is, you are not alone. Let me give you the short version. Hutchmoot is an annual arts conference hosted by the Rabbit Room in which we gather people together around art, music, story, and faith. If you want the long version, check out the website at hutchmoot.com, where all of your questions, or at least some of them, will be answered. In this episode, Kevin Twitt and Keith Getty discuss the complex craft of writing songs for the church. Kevin is the mastermind behind the Indelible Grace Project, and he also teaches at Belmont University, where he acts as the RUF campus minister. His fellow hymn writer, Keith Getty, has collaborated on a wealth of songs over the past two decades, including, among many others, In Christ Alone, which is one of my favorite hymns. Together, Keith and Kevin are masters of their craft, and they bring a lifetime of work to bear on the art of hymnody. My name's Kevin Twitt. Uh, This is Keith Getty. We're going to talk about the art of hymns, which is is a a favorite topic of mine, the life work of my friend over here. Yes. So what is a hymn? You know... It's, there's lots of different definitions, um, but I think the, the best way, when I'm talking about hymns, I'm talking about um, worship songs, congregational worship songs that tend to have two particular attributes that distinguish them from other kinds of congregational songs. First is a, kind of a form. The form is a certain number of lines with a particular rhyme scheme and a particular um, syllable scheme that repeats. So you have stanza, and then the next stanza, and the next stanza. And so form-wise, it, you know, it's, it's repetitive. And so you can use the same tune and sing stanza after stanza, right? So there, that's sort of the formal idea. And then thematically, hymns develop a theme. There's different ways that they do it, but they, they develop a theme. They start somewhere, and they take you somewhere. Um, it doesn't mean that other kinds of congregational songs are bad. They're just different. And, you know, it's one thing to sing a song kind of over and over again or to sing a song and then have a chorus with it. Uh, There's different ways you can be creative in those sorts of forms as well. But hymns tend to develop themes. And I think that's one of the things that is really, really great about them. Now, um, I like James Montgomery. James Montgomery wrote probably the hymn you would know best as Angels from the Realms of Glory. But he also wrote Hail to the Lord's Anointed based on Psalm 2. Um, he's one of the few really great poets who's actually a great hymn writer. Um, it, it actually, there, there's a, quite a particular art to writing a hymn. The way J- James Montgomery says a good hymn, you have to understand it the first time you sing it. So the poetry can't be so opaque that you have to kind of just kind of think about it and ponder it for a while. And yet at the same time, it needs to have enough, enough depth that singing it over and over again repays the effort and is worth it. So William Cooper, James Montgomery are probably the two great poets that also were great hymn writers. Anyway, he has a, a, a very, really great essay on what makes a good hymn that I've said I posted on that Double Grace Hymn Book website. But he says this, a hymn must have a beginning, a middle, and an end. There should be a manifest gradation in the thoughts, and their mutual dependence should be so perceptible that they could not be transposed without injuring the unity of the peace. In other words, you can't mix up the verses or it's going to mess it up. Every line carrying forward the connection and every verse adding a well-proportioned limb to a symmetrical body. <laughs> Even the way he writes prose, you know, is artistic, <laughs> right? 
Um, so then I just wanted to say something briefly, because Hutchmoot, you know, a lot of you all are interested in, you know, not just hymns, but in the arts in general and Christian reflection on the arts. And so I thought I'd at least address this question of, can you even talk about the art of hymns? And maybe some of y'all are big hymn fans and you would say, well, of course, but honestly, within the world of professional literary criticism, our uh, hymns are not generally regarded as art. It's kind of, there's quite a, a prejudice in a sense against hymns and thinking of them as art. And there's a couple reasons for this. Um, one is, particularly since the Romantic period, most people associate art with just giving free vent to your emotions, without any kind of restriction. And when you think about hymns, there are some restrictions. For one thing, you have to, you have to write something that could be sung by a group. There's also restrictions in terms of within the pale of orthodoxy. You can't just sort of give vent to any thought that pops into your head. And so post-romantic period, hymns seem to be so limited by those kind of constraints that it doesn't seem to be pure art. Now, as you might... Um, suspect, I think that there's some problems with that understanding of art. I think there's some problems with our culture's embrace of romanticism um, as the only legitimate way to think about art. So, um, but that's one of these. And I think there's also, you know, it's probably not unfair to say that there's a certain prejudice against Orthodox Christianity within the field of literary criticism. There is a, a guy named George Sampson who's put it this way. If Charles Wesley's hymns had been addressed to Pan or Apollo or some other heathen deity, or if they were written in some foreign tongue, how loud the praise would be. But alas, he addressed the Christian deity in English, and his poems are dismissed as mere hymns. Um, now, I'm taking that from a book here, which if, if, you, uh, if you wanted one book to help you appreciate the art of classic hymns, this is absolutely the book. The English Hymn, A Critical and Historical Study by J.R. Watson. Don't worry, I put it on that book list that I handed out. Unfortunately, I think this thing is about 100 bucks. It's not, but, you know, it was 60 bucks last year, so it keeps going up. So if you want to buy this book, you probably should invest in it now. But it's a fabulous book. J.R. Watson is an English uh, professor, and he just, he addresses the topic I'm talking about right now, but he also, you know, he'll have a chapter on Isaac Watts, and what are the elements of his style that are particular to him? What are the elements of Anne Steele, the elements of Horatius Bonar, all the different hymn writers, he'll, he'll really help you appreciate the art of their hymns. So if you're into literary sorts of things, you're into hymns, can't recommend highly enough this book. Um, so that's, I'm taking some of this stuff. But I will say there are a lot of hymns that are really bad poetry. And it's kind of fun to think about a couple. I'll give you a couple examples. There's one by Horatius Bonar that we put on an Indelible Grace CD, but we left this verse out. Um, saint after saint on earth has lived and loved and died. And as they left us one by one, we laid them side by side. We laid them down to sleep, but not in hope forlorn. We laid them but to ripen there till the last glorious morn. <laughs> the idea of buried bodies ripening is, you know, yeah, you can understand why we don't sing that verse. There's another one, um, Joseph Hart, who wrote Come Ye Sinners, uh, has a line in one of his hymns that goes this way, Christ, our paschal meat, was roasted in the flames. Yeah. So, you know, and then one of my favorites um, is this line from Top Lady, Augustus Top Lady, Rock of Ages, one of the best loved hymns in the English language, originally had the line, and when my eye strings break in death, which is a, a lovely image. It's the idea that there's sort of kind of this tendon back here, and when you die, it snaps, and your eyes kind of 
you know, roll after the body dries out enough. It's just not what people sing. And so fortunately it was changed to when my eyes shall close in death, right? Um, the other thing, the problem with talking about hymns as art is that a lot of the, the good poets deliberately tone down their poetry. Isaac Watts talks about doing this. Um, John Newton and William Cooper deliberately wrote for poor, mostly uneducated lace workers in the town of Olney. And so, you know, it's not necessarily fair to look at the hymns and say this exhausts the poetical skill of these folks. Um, and then I'll say one other thing I think is that a lot of people feel like if, if your art is to be used rather than just to sort of lift you up to some kind of platonic reflection, then it can't really be art. But of course we know Shakespeare was written to be performed and to be enjoyed. Um, it, it, people aren't very consistent with that. But there is a sense that because hymns are written to be sung by a congregation in worship, that it's not really art. We've sort of, in our, in our world, really, and, and I think pretty unbiblically, cordoned off art to places like museums and symphony halls. Um, the Bible doesn't actually really know that kind of distinction. It talks more about craft um, and being artistic in what you do, but it doesn't sort of cordon off high art from low art. That's, I think, a pretty unbiblical distinction, and it ends up affecting the way people think about hymns because they seem to be more utilitarian, therefore they can't be art. But I would suggest that they bought into an unbiblical idea of what art is. Um, the last thing I'd say about this, um, you know, the fact that there are limitations, I don't think means that hymns can't be art because I think certain restrictions, like the fact that you need to follow a particular rhyme scheme, a particular form that you've set up, the fact that you need to try to find a fresh way to say something, and yet also something that fits within the realm of orthodoxy and Christian experience, is actually an opportunity to, to be quite artistic, like crafting a four-minute pop song and doing it well. I, I do think that, that creativity sometimes can be even inspired by those sorts of restrictions, and maybe Keith will talk about that in, in a minute, because that's what you do all the time. You know, try how to, how to condense, like, because I know when I've talked to him sometimes, he'll say, tell me everything you know about this doctrine, and, and he'll just rapidly take all these notes, and then he'll go read all these books, and then he's going to try and turn that into, you know, a hymn of four or five verses. What? A sentence, yeah, in a sentence, yeah. And, uh, you know, there, that's, quite a, that's quite a task, and requires a lot of artistic skill. Um, let me just say a couple things about hymns, and then I'll turn it over to him. Here are some of the things that I think are particularly powerful, the way the classic hymns do um, artistic things, shall I say. One is the use of paradox. Think about this. It's one thing to describe, um, describe things in such a way that you've sort of exhausted your theme. It's another thing to say things in a way that continues to ha- help people reflect and feel that they can never plumb the full depths of what you're saying. For instance, um, well, I, I think paradox, the use of paradoxical language is really great for that. And it also combines with sort of the, the, you just don't have much space in a hymn. And so the way good hymns use economy of words along with paradox um, is really a, a, an important element of the art of hymnody. One of my favorite examples is Charles Wesley's line, being's source begins to be. Talking about the incarnation. Think of what you've got in there. Being's source begins to be. You've got good alliteration. You've got amazing paradox. 
There, there's a certain way. See, it's not like, you know, the, the songwriter has distilled what you should think about this. They're presenting it in a way that begins to get your imaginative juices going and, and lays it out there. You can sing that. You understand what it means right away. But could you ever exhaust that? Right? I love that sort of thing. Um, C.H. Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, said one time, when I cannot understand anything in the Bible, it seems as though God had set a chair there for me at which to kneel and worship, that the mysteries are intended to be an altar of devotion. And I feel like a good hymn is an opportunity to sit in a mystery for a few minutes and look at it from different angles. And the kinds of mysteries that you should never be able to fully exhaust. And again, I'll invoke Charles Wesley. And can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? That's better asked as a question than stated as a proposition. Now, I'm certainly, you know, somebody who, as a Presbyterian minister, believes in propositions. But I also believe that hymns do something a little different with theological truth than propositions and confessions of faith do. Both are important. Um, But the way these hymns ask questions is really um, powerful. I think, for me, one of the reasons I really came and started latching onto hymns was the way they didn't just talk about the cross as a passing reference, but they dwelt on it. And honestly, a lot of the songs that we were singing that weren't hymns, at the time I was starting this whole thing, were not talking about the cross very much at all. And I will tell you, this isn't just anecdotal, because I had an opportunity a couple years ago to go to Calvin College as part of a program that the Worship Institute up there did, along with a bunch of theologians and worship musicians and folks like that. And we spent a week studying the the top 250 praise songs, as recorded by CCLI, of the last 20 years, took that whole body, analyzed them theologically and, uh, you know, all this sort of thing, and then the top 250 hymn texts. And it really isn't just anecdotal that the modern songs rarely talk about the cross, and if they do, it's barely mentioned. The wrath of God appears in one you know, depending on, you know, on whether or not it gets through unscathed. Keith will talk about that. It's his. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and not everybody's like that about it, right? And, you know, and, and things like the Trinity, almost nowhere. Shine, Jesus, shine. About the only one that actually really, now there are some that would be like, Jesus, I love you. Spirit, I love you. Father, I love you. That's not really Trinitarian development, but at least it mentions the idea that there's a Trinity. But those sorts of things that are so essential, you know, that they make the Apostles' Creed even, Um, are rarely talked about in some of these songs. And so, for me, the way that theological truth is wedded to some of the richest Christian experience is really important, and it's really been important in my own development. Um, I think that the the hymns really engage our imagination, our will, and our intellect all at the same time. And a lot of our songs tend to be, I think they come out of more of a modernistic kind of idea. In other words, Modernism takes these rich Bible stories, tries to distill it down to a life principle, and then sort of presses it on you. That's kind of modernistic sermons do that, moralistic sermons do that. They, they sort of leave out the art of the way the Bible unveils a particular truth, a particular story. The hymns tend to tell a story and walk us through it, much like the Psalms do. And I think that that's, that's really important. And we should not just believe the Bible's doctrines, but even think about them and reflect on them the way the Bible you know, reveals them. C.S. Lewis said one time, which is more true, to say that God is omnipotent or say that God is a rock? And he says, you know, you might think with its pseudo-scientific language that God is omnipotent is more true, but which way does God describe himself? And it's worth thinking about that. 
Um, I think hymns, the last thing I'll say, and then you get ready to come up, is that hymns broaden our range of metaphors. And, and I think, you know, a lot of modern songs, there's a real paucity of metaphors. There's just sort of the same few, and they're biblical metaphors, and, you know, but, the, but there's just a lack of exploring the full range of the scripture. Um, it really was different when people studied memorized, composed poetry in school, and when the King James, which is a very poetically rich uh, translation, was their Bible, right? And I, I, f- I feel like, you know, these hymns, man, the way they just bring out metaphor. There's a guy, um, Peter Matheson, some of y'all might be interested in his book called The, the, the Imaginative Reformation, or The Imagination, Imaginative World of the Reformation, I think is the name of it. And... Um, He's basically an expert in popular culture, so he's studied sort of the popular culture, the plays and the woodcuts and the paintings and the songs right before the Reformation and then through the Reformation period. And he says that when your metaphors change, your world changes with them. And what you see at the Reformation is when people actually start to read the Bible for what it says, there's this explosion of metaphors. Prior to the Reformation, the dominant metaphor of Christ is Christ as judge, and that's really the only metaphor, the only way Christ is thinking of. It's a biblically true image, but cut off from all the other metaphors, it ends up being an untrue. As Calvin said one time, a half-truth masquerading as the whole truth is a complete untruth. And I think that that happens a lot, whereas some of these, these hymns just put you into other places, maybe even little-known places in the Scripture. If you look at, for instance, the annotated edition of the um, hymns for the people called Methodists, and you look at a good edition that, like that where they're pointing out every Scripture reference in Charles Wesley's verse, it will absolutely blow you away. Probably intimidate you a little bit. Maybe you don't want to do it if you're trying to write hymns, but I'll let you talk about that. Let's turn it over to Keith. Yeah. Am I on okay? Um, thank you for having me here. It's, it's a real privilege to be here. Is he on? It's a real privilege yep. um, to, to be at your conference. To, we got to know Andrew Peterson last year, and I've enjoyed our time with him. But also, I've never done one of these talks with someone else before, and so to get to do it with Kevin is cool. I've sat in some of your classes in Belmont. <laughs> a little we've, bit, yeah. We've been, I think we've done the tour of most of Nashville's coffee shops. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> As well as, as well as Severe Park, when I'm with, when I'm with my daughter at the Swimming yeah, Slides, you even come down. Yeah. And every, every time I'm with him, I pick up some new nuances. My wife and I were introduced by her uncle, who's a man called John Lennox. He's a professor, professor mm-hmm. at Oxford. You may know him from the Lennox-Dawkins debates that have become very popular. Um, he's a professor of abstract mathematics, but is a be- <laughs> very passionate believer. And, um, but one of the interesting things he said to me when I started when I chose to do music rather than become a pastor like five of the guys in my high school Bible study cross did, um, he said, be the best musician you can be, but allow your faith. Make sure your faith is always growing faster than your music. So whether you're a mother or a painter um, or a designer or musician or, or medic or businessman or whatever it should be, it, it's, it's a good model in our minds. Um, that, that as we look back and reflect, perhaps we come to Hutchmoot every year, perhaps we come to the end of the year, perhaps we sit down with friends once a year and ask questions about how life's going to pause and those things. Um, and I would say, without trying to sound a little bit pathetic, that's one of the things I love about Kevin, is that um, every time we get together, I learn something about hymns, and I, I think about faith in new ways. Um, 
Um, just again, this has nothing to do with what I was going to say, but I was talking to Jim Thomas a little bit about how do you handle being in Nashville with so many people coming around you who are you know, creative, celebrities, competitors, whatever else, whatever else it is. And he said, no matter how much fun or no matter how much business you have, you try to ask questions of the soul. Try once in your conversation to ask questions of the soul, you know, so that you season all your fun. And, and I'm Irish, so, you know, we tend to have a lot of fun, um, you know, but that we, we, we mix in all that, some, something of the soul. So, um, so we're grateful for what you've done, Kevin. Uh, I think, I, didn't Likewise. we start our adventure at a similar time? Uh, we, we, 2000, I, I, so. I, I was 2000, I started writing hymn tunes. Right. So it must have been at about a... That's when our first record came out. Yeah, we've right, been working so, yeah. on it kind of privately yeah, it took for me, a while. It took, me, it took me 2001 to get a lyric on it. And then, um, so I was a little behind, but um, <laughs> yep. anyway, as I said, we, we have been writing hymns. I, I, I should say from the start, I write hymns with, I've been privileged to write with two people. Um, one of them is very attractive and I'm married to them and one of them is not. Um, <laughs> Kristen, Kristen is obviously my wife and then Stuart Tynan, who really is my hymn writing mentor. I should say that m- many of these best ideas came from them, but conversely, I wouldn't presume that everything I say today is, is exactly as they would want it said, but um, I'll give it my best. In terms of whether hymns or art or, or whatever else, I, again, I, I side with Kevin uh, on, the, on the concept of craft. Um, um, Steve Jobs said that this creativity is really just a combination of your experiences. So for Steve Jobs, he was a guy who had two nerd obsessions in life. He, he happened to love creativity of all kinds. He'd travel the ends of the earth just to look at a building or architecture or smell a new smell, study a religion hang out in the bus with musicians because he just loved the creative impulse. And they thought he was some bizarre nerd who played with large boxes. And all his friends who were bizarre nerds over here who played with large boxes um, had no interest in going on music tours and smoking dope all summer. And so he had these two incredible worlds. And as an entrepreneur, he managed to combine this large box that he thought was the greatest human invention in the history of mankind called the personal computer and creativity to, as an entrepreneur, create many things that combine those two things together. I, at a much more pathetic level, um, am an Irish Presbyterian who studied classical music and grew up in a home which was very conservative. We're only allowed to listen to church music. So I don't think I even played something which wasn't classical music or congregational music till I was at university. So everything I listened to was music that it was how you sing. My first uh, per setting up bands uh, uh, were at church. My, I, I, orchestrated, I was orchestrating for church services from when I was 15, 16, and everything was about trying to write music that large numbers of fat, passionate people can sing quickly. <laughs> so that's kind of how I come about. That's how I come about music. I would say um, at 18, I left, I left, I left Ireland and uh, moved to a pagan country called England and uh, tried, to, tried to convert most of the university to, to, to Christianity in the first term. So I got involved in, in debates with people who were students of, had been stupid, so students of, yeah, was it Don Cupid was his name, Emmanuel Cambridge, the, the first atheist theologian, oh, I and um, uh, who were atheists, um, got hammered and badly in these debates. Then I, I debated an Islamic guy. We talked about faith, and he, had, he was from an Islamic background. He'd become a Christian, done his master's in theology to become a pastor, and decided to turn back to Islam to convert Britain to Islam. And so uh, I met very competitive people who had very different views to me after a conservative background, and that, and that really shook all the roots of my faith, um, and through John Lennox and others, um, really studied the life, the, the, the prophecies, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ, and could not get beyond that. And um, so left university, um, having 
probably stronger in my faith, certainly more robust and reshaped, but with a passion to say, what does that mean for music? And um, so I began to relook at the, my sort of background of, like many of you, playing prayer songs and playing hymns in church and saying, what, what does the 21st century need? We live in a new century. It's a new world. There's more Christians in the world today. The Bible is in more languages than any point in history. Christianity has grown faster in the last century than ever before. More martyrs in the 20th century than the previous 19 centuries. We live in a flat world, a world that responds to music, a world that, at this, for this point and certainly for the short to medium future, loves, loves the, wants the Western lead in music. So what does that mean for what we sing in church? And um, all that was, those questions were going on. And as I was looking at sort of church history, there were three things I noticed in church history. And it wasn't just three things because I'm Presbyterian and everything ultimately has to be three. But there were, there were three things that we were, that were noticing, and they all slightly overlap. And the first one was this, that, that what we sing in church profoundly affects how we think if you happen to be involved as a writer or worship leader or, to, or pastor or mother, then, then what your people under your care sing will profoundly affect what they think. From the earliest parts of the Old Testament, um, God's people learned their sense of identity, their sense of genealogy, um, what they understood about God, what they understood about the useless rats that were themselves, and everything else through what they sang. They understood the largest book in the Old Testament, of course, being the Psalms. They learned the vast gamut of what is revealed about God from a God who is a God of judge, a God of wrath, a God who is to be feared, a God of anger, to a God who is peace, a God who is love, a God who knows us and care for us and comes after us and is a shepherd to us, and all of those things. And so you get this wonderful, often apparently contradictory, but this wonderful big picture of God as to how we learn God. And conversely, then we learn human experience through that. Um, so the Psalms, as you know, are a third lament. That is not lament like Van Morrison's kind of nobody understands me approach to life, um, nor is it, nor is it a, a kind of a Disney lament where in the middle of the story it all goes wrong and everybody wins in the end, but, but laments that understand the reality of human experience, understand the baggage that each of us are carrying coming to this conference and all the insecurities that each of us have when we meet other people here, and, and how out of that we resolve to understanding that God is God and we are human, and how we respond to that, and that we ultimately can uh, trust in him if we choose to. So God's people learn their faith through that. Luther and Calvin, um, were, were, um, through church history, the people were, early Christian doctrine was taught, the New, early New Testament hymns, but the death and resurrection of Christ. Christian doctrine taught through liturgy, Luther and Calvin, both in different ways. Um, Luther believed that you learned your faith through the preaching and the singing of the word. Calvin believed in the catechizing of God's people through what they sing. And, um, and then, of course, as, as, as Kevin's rightly reminded us, Charles Wesley with the vision to re-educate Britain, um, to, to theologize Britain. He wrote these songs and traveled up and down on horseback, which would have been painful, except he didn't have to go through security, which is kind of nice. Second thing is that God's people throughout history, when they sing, um, sing the holy act of singing is, is the togetherness of people. And again, this is real. This is not really, really theological. I'm sorry, sorry, Kevin. This is just a real quick summary, just because I'm time. Um, that God's people sing together. They, when we write, when we lead, when we assess congregational worship, the holy thing is all of us together. That's what God's people did in the Old Testament in times of war, in times of mourning, in times of celebration. The artist that we write for is called the congregation. It is not the choir, and it is not the worship leader. It is the congregation. 
Um, um, almost, one, one almost thinks of, of Lewis's comment about, about the, great, the, great, the great art not being the, the great sculptures or architecture or symphonies, but being the person beside you in the bus. That's a helpful way of thinking about it. The microcosm, uh, the heaven is where people of every tribe and tongue gather together to sing congregational worship. Um, is a microcosm of that that we have on earth. A little moment. I spoke to a lady recently in an Italian restaurant in Wisconsin and said to her, and said to her what is the most moving worship experience you've had recently? And she said, being with a number of believers in North Vietnam, getting in a circle, round a table, and whispering hymns in rhythm because they, they, they don't dare let the noise come out. But that was the precious thing. And the precious thing on a Sunday is that. And if you're involved in church worship, the first question you should be asking after a service as a musician is, how did our people sing? That's the first question. And the rest of the stuff is all secondary. It's not unimportant because everything is important. But it's absolutely not the first thing. So that's the second thing. The third thing was, was and this, again, this is, kind of, this is us kind of dreaming a little bit at this point, is that God's people throughout history pass songs on. Um, it's, it's partly a, do, the do, the, a doctrine of life which leads to a doctrine of art which says that, that, that it's important to have things that have longevity and value but, but, but my, my grandfather for example died at 94 um, in the last year of his life uh, for the first time said he believed Baptists went to heaven and he never believed that so we knew, we knew his brain was gone he didn't know my name anymore he didn't know my name anymore but, but he still knew great hymns of the faith and I think that is an illustration, an outworking of why it's important that whether it's 10% or 90% of what we sing in a Sunday, that, those th- that there are songs we carry with us through life. It's not that a song you sing today and dump in three years' time or three weeks' time will not be remembered. There's a chance, it's not that there's a chance that it won't be remembered in the last day of your life. It just flat out won't be remembered. So we needn't kid ourselves about this kind of thing. We're, and and, and I'm, I'm not saying we don't do that. I, I'm saying, you know, if you, all I'm saying is amongst the canon of what you sing as a family, as an individual, and as a congregation, there has to be a proportion of those, whether it's 10 or 90, that are songs we carry with us through life. I believe it's a model. It's what, it's what you know, God's people have done throughout history. It's what the Psalms were there for and all that kind of stuff. So, all that to say, we started to, that, that, that's a dream. That's not to say that we'll ever achieve that in life, but that at least was our dream. If a, pop, if a pop artist's dream is to be on the front page of the newspaper, the classical artist likes to write something with, with longevity. So we thought, let's try, let's try and really develop, to try and do that, and also to try and find other material that is that way and promote it. So that's kind of the three goals. Um, shall I just go through like three songs? Yeah, is, that, yeah. is that helpful? Yeah, at least, yeah. Good, um, should we just do that? Um, um, do you know the In Christ Alone song we did? That was, the, that was the first one we did, and quite honestly, we should have quit after that, because that was, that was uh, if art develops, if art develops, you know, we didn't. So we just got worse every year, and it's really depressing, to be honest. Um, if you, can, do you want to put the words up for those things? Because I don't know how computers work. Yeah, it's good. Um, so that was, that was the first song. The idea was basically to write a cradle song. Um, uh, the context of, of worship music in the year 2000 was that, um, I believe, in, uh, in the main book in Britain that comes out, which was called the Spring Harvest Songbook, uh, had one song mentioning eternity, heaven, hell, or the life thereafter, and twice mentioned forgiveness or sin. And it, it was probably the extreme end of the, of the movement in terms of when things were experiential. So we wrote hymns that were cradle. So in Christ alone, my hope is found. I, I wrote this melody. Um, I wrote this melody. It kind of sounds... It's, uh, well, you know what it sounds like, but it's, it's, um, it's kind of, it has that Irish, it's almost entirely pentatonic, except for one note. 
Um, and with that slight irregularity, but I can't really analyze our own stuff. I'm just telling you how we did. So in Christ alone is, is four verses. So you have an opening verse, um, and then the second verse. The song sort of takes you through a sense of story. Again, one of the first challenges for us back in 2000 was how do we get contemporary churches to sing theology given the context of what's being sung around them and so um, I, I suspect Andrew Peterson and others can explain this better to you but the sense of story in what we sing the sense of story in what we write the sense of story in, in presentation to people is, an, is, an, is a really important way to engage people and even in our prayer life and even in how we explain our faith the sense of the meta-narrative of the gospel being able to do this so the song goes on through. you can just put them on through the song if you want to do that hey can I ask um, a question yeah sure so that last line in each no don't, verse, don't you're not going to ask me there. okay what the question? way it develops okay okay yeah yeah did you did you plot it out and then kind of fill in like in other words um, we want to start from here and go well, to here I mean honestly you know Stuart and I Stuart did chatted. the words Stuart, this one this with the words are, are pretty much all, except for three words the words are all Stuart's yeah. So, um, so the, the the concept which we we discussed was the idea of a song which goes through the life of Christ. It's like a cradle song on on what Christ's life is, mm-hmm. the, almost a song that you can explain to people, and 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 but help people understand the gospel. And um, uh, but also understanding that Christianity is a testimony. It's interesting. I spent my twenties writing a number of or being involved in a number of theatrical or concept productions, which were supposed to introduce people to Christianity in a subtle way, kind of. Kind of, we were C.S. Lewis wannabes. We're from Belfast. We're artists, of course we were. But um, but it's interesting that this hymn reaches more people who are not Christian at all in any one year by its use at weddings and funerals and, and inaugurations than all those productions put together. So all that to say, what we sing in church is important. It's ex- it's extremely important, and it, and it's not just for us. It's, so um so yeah so that's that song. So that was kind of the cradle thing. Shall we go to um. We did, we did a whole bunch of creedal songs. We went through the Apostles' Creed, as had Cecil Francis Alexander, Wesley Watts, and others before us in a much more successful way. We then, did, we then started to write liturgical songs. Should we look? Have you got Behold the Lamb, the communion hymn there? Behold the Lamb. <laughs> okay, which ones do you have there? Um, well, let's, let's, look at, let's, look at, let's look at before you went. Uh, let's look at it by faith. Let's take by faith up. By faith, by faith. Uh, if you're from Ireland... Um, this is this is a song. It's kind of, I guess, it's creedal in a way. It took the, took the Hebrews eleven passage, the by faith, you know, the kind of the whole of fame of everybody starts off in creation and goes through all people through history. Here's this is an important thing about collaboration. Um, Andrew has this wonderful vision of people collaborating, so I should say something about collaborating. My wife and I decided to write this song. My wife's really really excited about teaching people the Old Testament, and so she wrote by faith and went through the Hebrews eleven, you know, all the characters, and she wrote like thirteen verses to it. And I knew no one was going to sing this. And we were going out on a date that night. And so she said to me, she said to me, what do you think of this? I said, I think it's perfect. I think it'll work great. And then, and then, uh, and then I got up the next day and said, no, it sucks. We've got to start again. So I don't know, I don't know what I'm telling you. That's probably not very helpful, but it's just, it's just, it's just something. So anyway, Hebrews, so it took the Hebrews 11 again, taking you through the story. Um, starting with starting again, starting with creation, um, moving towards the time that the longed for Messiah would appear, 
Uh, and, then, and then what our role is as the church from that. Um, giving people a sense of history, a sense of belonging, a sense of context, like, 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 like indeed the hymns of the Old Testament did. Uh, and then the, the chorus is the opening of Hebrews 12. Since then we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us stand firm, let us hold fast, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That's my translation yeah. of yeah, Hebrews yeah. 12 verse So one. this one develops more a scripture passage. Right, right, yeah. mm-hmm. right. Right, we then... Um, uh, we then did a lot of liturgical hymns. Um, so I was, I was going to show you the communion, but we, we, we can do some. We, we'll, um, but we went through the church's year, and then we also did Christmas and Easter stuff, which led to us doing the, sort of the Christmas production thing that we do. And then from there, about three years ago, we started to write hymns, hymns um, for the Christian life, we called it. But it was basically hymns for, for aspects of Christian living. Have you got Before You, I Kneel there? Before You, I Kneel is a song we wrote on daily work. Um, we, had to, we did a talk, when we first came here, a talk, do you know Jeff Barnison up in, in he's, he's at Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and um, he, he was involved with the InterVarsity group who share a building with the chapel group there, mm-hmm. and the only thing they had in common was that they sang, they sang our hymns totally differently, though, but one group sang them with like high church arrangements, and the, 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 the sort of the Jesus jingler sang them with their guitars and stuff, and it was, it was really cool, and... Um, and uh, so they said, come and do a lecture. The two groups will come. And it was, yeah. it was, it was a real fun time. But, but they asked us, said, you should write sometime a hymn. They do a service every year called the Service for the Holy Ordination to Daily Work. So when you, as you graduate from there, whether you, whatever your tr- trade you're going into, there's a service that you go through a liturgy. And so they said, could you write a certain song? So we thought about it for years and eventually did it. And so this is a song for the daily workplace. As Kevin will remind you, Charles Wesley wrote the best song on everything. Charles Wesley had a hymn called... Isn't it forth in thy name, O Lord, we go, our daily labor to pursue you? His is better. But um, if we just have a look at this, before you I kneel, our master and maker. That's the second verse. Have you got the first verse there? Before you I kneel. Thank you so much for doing this, brother. This is fantastic. Um, Before you I kneel. Okay. To offer the work of my hands, for this is the day you've given your servant. I will rejoice and be glad. And the next line, for the strength I have to live and breathe. For each skill your grace has given me, for the needs and opportunities that will glorify your great name. So it's a prayer, and it's also a prayer you can live. I mean, I know a lot of some people who put this in their Bible or on their desk. And indeed, when I'm having one of those days where I just kind of bother doing my quiet time in the morning, or I'm in a rush, and I'm not feeling very charitable. Um, I don't know if you ever have those days. But um, I, I actually sometimes just read this. It's, it's another advantage of, of what poetry can do. It can give voice to, to prayer in your daily life. But let, let's just have a look at the lyric. I'll give you two or three examples of how we, how we argued the lyric here. So, so can we go back to the verse one just one more time? So, servant, I will rejoice and be glad. In the next part of the verse, if we can just go to the next slide, thank you. For the strength I have to live and breathe, for each skill, we originally had for each skill that you have given me, which is fine. But when you say for each skill that you have given me, what do you, what do you think about? Yeah, yeah. I do anyway. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> but for each skill your grace has given me, it, it just rhymes it, doesn't it? It, 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 it makes it so. Let's move on to ver- the next verse. Let's see. Um, the, the glorify your great name is kind of the light motif at the end of every verse. Jeff Taylor, a friend of ours and a friend of Andrew's and, Pete and Kevin's, um, was in our house one day and he said, he was her- we're talking about this hymn, and he goes, it would be amazing if you could have a hymn that did what Bach did with his work, in the sense that Bach wrote the SDG at the bottom, at the start of every piece, at the beginning of every day, Soli Deo Gloria, and he finished his day's work and wrote SDG at the bottom. And he said, "What a song that allows each one of us, as a mother, a medic, a manager, a musician, whatever it is, to to, to focus um, all of our thoughts in our working day captive." Um, so before you, I kneel. Here's verse two. But before you, I kneel. This is the second half. 
So before you, I kneeled and asked for your goodness to cover the work of my hands, for patience and peace to shape all my labors, your grace for thorns in my path. Then we go on. Flow within me like a living stream. Wear away the stones of pride and greed. That was originally take away the stones of pride and greed. To, to say take away the pride, the stones of, to take away the stones of pride and greed, well, you can't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. at least not while we've got breath in our bodies yeah. it ties in so, with the stream language too. that's right that's right and so and this is this is one of the huge concerns with where careless syntax and hymns you know i grew up i grew up with all those songs about in your presence my problems disappear or whatever they all were all those kind of songs you know and and but so many of my friends actually believed that do you know what i mean and and it's interesting that the fallout in 20s and 30s is higher than it's ever been. And I think part of it is because people are seduced through the door of emotional music. Yeah. But that doesn't, isn't actually telling you the truth. One, uh, one social something person has suggested that our generation is the first in centuries. That, and my, my parents' generation, for example, you know, distant relatives sort of drifted away from church as life became more exciting elsewhere. Then everything hit the wall and often they came back to church. Our generation is first that the reverse is more true that people are walking away from church when it goes wrong because, because the, what we sing has no expression for the reality of human experience. What we sing has no expression for a God who would allow things that don't appeal to what we actually want today at, uh, in, in the immediate thing. So, so words are important. Let's, let's do one more and then I'll quit. Are you, I'm, I'm so sorry. This must be so boring. Like, I'm bored listening to myself. And this is, <laughs> it must be killing you lot. So the third verse in, before we kneel, our master maker, establish the work of our hands and order our steps to seek first your kingdom and every small and great task. Then the next slide says, thank you so much. May we live the gospel of your grace, serve your purpose in our fleeting days. Then our lives will bring eternal praise and glory to your name. Again, this line here is serve your purpose. My wife loves to paint pictures of, of heaven and the fact that we're eternal beings. Um, and so she originally had serve your purpose in unending days. The idea that what we're doing now will continue forever. You know, the old, I forget who was said, when you hear one day that I have died, don't believe it. Do you know what I mean? That, that, that was her kind of idea on that. But for a song about the working day, we looked at it and realized that the more appropriate syntax is serve your purpose in our fleeting days. More the fact that I think it was John Calvin who said that the, the ground that we stand on between earth, here and eternity is but a tissue. We're all standing here today, but... We don't know if we'll be here. The truth is, none of us know if we'll be here at Hutchmoot next year. You know, that's the truth. And so the working day needs a sense of urgency to it. It needs a sense that we, we, take, we, take, we take advantage of the things that we, the opportunities that God has given us today. Anyway, that's the introduction to the songs. I've gone way over time. I'm going to ask you some questions. Okay, I'm done. I'm finished. Because I've heard Man. you talk before. I have that benefit that maybe I did not the, all these folks Well, do. I did. Um, what I hear coming through there is a significant amount of work in revising you know, whereas I feel like a lot of, even our view, that romantic view of art is the Lord gave me this song, boom, I just spontaneously write it out. Um, often there's just jumbled images that don't develop a theme. Um, talk about that and why you work so hard to keep revising, keep, you know, changing the wording. Because I know there's a reason why you, yeah. you do that. Yeah, well, I would say a few, cav- a few caveats first. Number one, the, 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 the lyrical brilliance is Stuart and Kristen. I, I have some conceptual ideas, and mm-hmm. I've certainly got lots of opinions, but the actual brilliance, the creative brilliance and that stuff is there, the creative skill is theirs. Um, secondly, 
occasionally the Lord does drop songs, melodies, words into people's lap. And Christ alone did not take long to do. I think Stuart wrote that in two months, which I know for, you know, compared to most people, it was a long time. But I mean, we wrote a song called The Power of the Cross. If you, I don't know if you know that song, but that took 15 months. We wrote 17 verses to that before we finally pared it down to four and actually got the flow of thought that we wanted. And even he and I were, were in direct opposition because I felt the chorus. It goes, da, 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 I wanted forgiven, da, 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 da. And he didn't want forgiven in the chorus. So in the end, we had, we had to compromise. And we stand forgiven at the cross. So it was, um, so we, you know, it was, yeah. so it was quite a tense process. Um, uh, so, so, so sometimes they take longer than others. Um, gosh, I don't know what to say other than you, well, just, you just Part keep, of it, you, I mean, just like keep I heard working. you say the other day, I mean, you want songs that will last. Yeah. And it, it's probably worth working on them. Well, yeah, I think... Continuing revising them and Yeah, I think them. so. I mean, certainly from the melody point of view, I, uh, between manuscript books, iPhones, and garage, garage band, sorry, we say garage band, um, garage band, um, between the three, we, I, I'm sure I put down a thousand ideas in a year to, to, to get six, seven useful results, you know, yes. and so, yeah, art for us is, 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 is pretty hard work, yeah. you know what I mean? And, I think um, a lot of people, like, that's kind of sobering to hear. Yeah. A thousand, you just said a thousand oh, yeah, ideas. Oh, yeah, well, I, I, as, a, as, a, as a discipline, I'm I'm basically I'm basically a sports guy personality, but rubbish at sport. Do you know what I mean? And that you know I want you know I, I I'm very extrovert. I like to go after things, hit targets, and so as a as a thing, I will sit down for three hours in the morning and try and come up with five new melody ideas, and I'll go different directions. It may not be the best economical use, but I find for me that's yeah. the thing that gets me out of bed and gets me going. You yeah. know. Well, yeah. now I've got a two and a half year old daughter who does the former. But in terms of getting me, <laughs> yeah. in terms of getting me going, that's yeah. you know. So, so yeah, I think yeah, we work work pretty hard. At, and um, I think also another thing I'd say is we've we've used in the positive sense of the word theologians at the front and back end. So mm-hmm. Most people don't bother with theologians or pastors in the process. Um, some people use them on the back end, almost like kind of theological headmasters. You slap yeah. your knuckles if you say something that's slightly you know, dodgy right. to right. whatever their levels of dodginess are. Um, we, we tend to use them a lot on the front end, like yourself. Like when we, I'm saying, look, we want to write something on this. What, how has this subject been said in, in culture? In, how has this been expressed well in the history of prayers, liturgy, right. art, sermons, preachings, uh, Hymnody. Um, what is culture saying about it now? And so we, we've leaned heavily on, on people who, we, who inspire our imaginations. I think if we're, not, if we're not most excited about the current thing we're working on, whether we're a teacher, a writer, or whatever, if the current thing we're doing is not the thing that we can't stop talking about or can't stop thinking about if you're not as extrovert as I am, um, if it's not the thing that, that then you need, to, you need to go back to the drawing board. Do you know what I mean? You need to find who are those people in life who poured water into your soul to make you do that. And that's not to say that all of us don't go through good and bad times we do. And, yep. you know, we've, we've lived through our share as well. And, um, but in terms, of, in terms of staying active and vibrant, you know, my melodies at the minute are struggling because I'm not listening to enough other stuff. I'm, I'm caught inside a tour. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, over the summer, I've, I've got myself lined into directions of music that I was into before, just for one reason or another, the people I'm with. Okay. And I feel... I've produced nothing that's fresh, really. Mm. I think I've revised a couple of old things that have got better, but none of the stuff that I've written is really that dynamic, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I've heard. I'll ask you this last question, then we'll open it up. Um, I've heard you talk well about the relative importance of tunes to lyrics. 
Yeah. And, you know, a bad tune. <laughs> Talk about that. Because I think that's an interesting point that you make. And, and it explains part of why you work so hard on the tunes. Well, not just the words. Yeah, well, no, it was, it, I think it was just, it was, somebody was asking me from a scientific point of view. They were, uh, there was, they were very kind of cerebral. And they were saying about, you know, theology is all that's important. And it was just a simple, obvious cultural point that, that a good tune with a good music, that, a good tune and good words that, that match well make a good song. Bad tune and bad words make a bad song. Um, uh, a, a bad tune and good words will never get sung. A good tune and bad words will often get sung. <laughs> and that's not, and honestly, you know, and I've got some, yeah. I got some conservative reform friends who think that's because it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a world that's going to hell and it's because we're all, it's a backslidden culture. And it's not, it's because we're fearfully and wonderfully made. We're created in God's image. We want beautiful music, you know. When it comes to my wife's anniversary, I don't go, what restaurant can we go to that the food's edible? You know, you know, we go to the place that we go to the place that for three days we're thinking about the sauce or the wine or the meat or whatever it is that or the ambiance of the place or just the feel or the the cool whatever it is, you know. And so, and so, we're trying to create something that that people want to sing. That that all my conservative friends fist pump tighter and all my charismatic friends hands go higher and you know whatever it is, you know. So, so we want to get something that that that, that energizes us, that makes us stand taller and, and breathe deeper. So yeah. The Hutchmood Podcast is brought to you by the Rabbit Room Podcast Network. Special thanks to Andrew Osinga for the use of his song Perihelion One from his amazing record, Leonard the Lonely Astronaut.